The goal of stoicism is to be able to bounce back when, when things happen. Really, you can't protect people from all, all the, the carnage that happens with life. Bad things happen to good people, bad things happen unexpectedly. A lot of people always send me messages saying like, oh, I failed at stoicism, uh, what do I do? Yeah, you can't fail at stoicism, right? Because it, it, it's not over, right? Stoicism is an ongoing process. When I read Socrates, I was just so struck by just how like fiercely uh, principled and fiercely valued he was around like, I value wisdom, I value being a good person, I value uh, justice, I value virtue. And, and not just like saying that, but trying to actually do it, kind of like over and over and over again. And I think the Stoics who were also really focused on a lived philosophy. Welcome back to The Everyday Stoic with myself, William Mulligan. Joining me today is Scott Waldman, who is the author of Socratic Questioning for Therapists and Counselors, and his upcoming book, The Stoicism Workbook. Scott is a psychologist, and his expertise lie in CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which was inspired by Stoicism, and he researched and studied under the legend himself, the father of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Aaron T. Beck. Scott is a master at giving guidance and advice, practical steps that you can incorporate into your life to overcome these boundaries, these limits, these difficulties that you may face, such as anxiety and rumination. I mean, this is what his expertise is. This is what he does every single day. And talking with him, I picked up on so much great knowledge that I can incorporate into my life. So hopefully you can also incorporate it into yours. Today's episode is powered by Huel. Huel is a quick, affordable, nutritiously complete food with everything that your body needs. Let's get into the conversation. Oh, and some really good news for me and for you is the Everyday Stoic Simple Rules for a Good Life is available for pre-order. And I got sent the first print and I think it looks incredible. Uh, it's really high quality, really beautiful. And I've read it. I think the author is a great guy. I'm the author, by the way. When, when I initially wrote down kind of the um, idea of who you was, I've got it in front of me. It says, psychologist, stoic, memes. And that was my first initiative. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what is your, sorry, what's your thoughts of the memes? Because I get so much good feedback on making memes. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I think, it, well, initially that, when I had the the page in mind, right? I first started my page, the goal was to try and, I'd already sold my, my Socratic question book to everybody I knew and everybody they knew. And I was like, well, I guess I gotta go meet some more people. And then like very quickly, I was like, Okay, if I like make this page this page exclusively about the book, ultimately I'm gonna end up giving like the book away like completely for free. And then I'll write and then even then I'll run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> and then there was this thing that I noticed where um I mean the, the memes are somebody called them like uh uh like hieroglyphs at some point. I was like, that's really interesting. They were like they're like they're small ideas, but they kind of convey a big idea and it's like a fast way to kind of capture like the essence of something. That's more effective than me like pouring like hours into this infographic that I feel so strongly about and like kind of gets lost. Yeah. <laughs> what I what I remind myself is most people don't don't get on social media for like like an infographic, right? Most people are there kind of for entertainment. And so we're trying to kind of like a, a parent trying to sneak some vegetables into dinner. I'm trying to <laughs> capture you, be a little entertaining, and then like sneak in something that might be helpful. I think that that's the way I've seen it is um, 
at least I noticed I I put so much time into making some piece of content. And I'm like, this is this is genius. At least to me, it was it was genius. Mm-hmm. And I post it out, and it gets no feedback, no likes, anything. And I'm like, maybe people don't like this. And then I post some silly meme where I thought, mm-hmm. I wanted to do it just for my own um, fun. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, this is fun. And the feedback was amazing. And people are like, now even when I post memes, people are like, oh, this is the reason I follow stoicism. And yeah, it's, you know, one meme isn't the real answer. It's not like um, factually correct, like, um, representation of stoicism but it gets people interested and then they see more memes they get a bit better understanding and eventually they might go right i'm gonna read the meditations i'm gonna um read the enchiridion because i'm seeing all these interesting things about stoicism yeah absolutely absolutely and i think about there's um so al bandura was one of like the early uh researchers in uh behavior therapy he pioneered this idea of uh, social reinforcement, kind of like monkey see, monkey do. Like you can see somebody do something, you can learn from them. You don't have to learn, you don't have to do it yourself to learn it. And one of the things that he found was that an imperfect model is actually a better teacher than a perfect model. So I I, I kind of lean into that a little bit with the memes. This idea of like, let me both embrace my, hum, my, my human struggles and then at the same time try and lean into some like resilience and wisdom at the same time, instead of being just like the the sage as my in the memes that I try to go with. So I don't know if that has the same effect that it does, but that's my my line of thinking of how I landed where I'm at. Yeah, I think, I guess they're um, way more relatable. It's kind of like you're saying, you know, if if the example is too perfect and too um, hard to attain, like the sage, then people kind of go, well, that's not for me, throw it away. But when you you see, at least how I see it, when I see like a meme going like, Mm -hmm. uh, this is how I deal with problems, you know, like uh, something about... I'm trying to think about when I posted recently, but like I post a lot about the dichotomy of control because it's quite an easy meme to create and it's quite funny. And you know, someone sees it and goes, oh, I, I can do that. I can um, pay more attention to what I can control, not pay so much attention to what I don't control. And it's just, I think it's an easier way of representing something whilst being more relatable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just, it's more enjoyable for you, right? If you're putting your time into this, you might as well do something that's going to be kind of entertaining. Yeah, because they're fun to make, uh, and I always feel like the 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 more I'm laughing at it, the more more humorous I find it, then the better it does. So it's quite a good gauge. Um, how how is stoicism related to modern day therapy? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> so modern therapy, one of the most popular therapies currently is cognitive behavior therapy, which is what I specialize in. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, was was really kind of co-fathered. So um, Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck were kind of the two fathers of, of CBT. Albert Ellis, you know, very famously quoted Epictetus when he says, you know, people aren't bothered by things, but by, by their views of them. And then that really shaped the idea of cognitive therapy. Because the idea of cognitive therapy is it's not just what happens, but how you make sense of it. There's a story you tell yourself, and that story ultimately can become self-limiting. So part of what therapy is, is help people learn to slow down, take a step back mentally, figure out what's the story that I've learned to tell myself. Is this true? Is this helpful? And then try to find, well, what am I, what might I be missing? So that's really the foundation of modern therapy. Of course, there's, there's a lot of stuff in ancient stoicism that the uh, Beck and Ellis didn't really get into. They, they, they spent a lot of time with some of these seminal quotes from Epictetus, but there's further stuff that it's kind of untouched, which is why we wrote the the workbook to try and capture 
our, our CBT friends and say, hey, look, there's a lot of good stoics that could be helpful. And try and capture our stoic friends and say, hey, there's some CBT that could be helpful. Um, but kind of why and what's the heart of it? So so I used to, uh, I worked for Aaron Beck as, as a CBT trainer. I was in the public mental health system, training people on the front lines, working with folks in the city of Philadelphia who were uh, under-resourced and really needed good therapy. And while I was talking with Dr. Beck when he was there, his last great paper was on this idea of catastrophizing. So catastrophizing is, is, our, is our brain's tendency to overestimate the likelihood that something bad's going to happen, overestimate how bad it's going to be, and underestimate our ability to cope with it. And so he was studying this, and he was really fixated on how this showed up across diagnoses. It was his last great paper is looking at across all the major diagnoses, catastrophizing shows up. And so to, to me, stoicism is kind of a way to prevent that catastrophizing. The, the holy grail of, of mental health is how do we prevent mental health problems from happening? How do we capture people and, and keep them well? And the idea, according to Donald Robertson, the goal of stoicism is moving from what if to so what? So, so instead of trying to think really positively about things in, in a blindly naive way, recognizing that, you know, sometimes, as you say, it might rain, and but you can dance in the rain instead of sulking in the rain. These bad things might happen, but I, I'm stronger than that. I can endure this. And so to me, that that resilience that comes from stoicism is exactly what, what we need right now. Yeah, I like that. And I'm glad you um, said you specialize in CBT because I've been thinking a lot of questions around CBT. So that's good. Oh, uh, fantastic. So you're, you're uh, strongly believe it's better to, um, a prevention is better than a cure. Yeah, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's that's the saying. Definitely. I like that. Um, so, uh, can you just explain how CBT works? Like a rough explanation of CBT. Yeah, sure. if, if that's possible. I don't know if it's too broad to explain. So CBT as a therapy, right? Like the like a user experience, right? If you were to go see like a CBT therapist, CBT is inherently a skills based training approach. So it's it's different than like a therapist you might see on television, where like you lay on a couch. And you just kind of like free associate for a few weeks, a few years about like your mother or whatever comes up for you. CBT is really practical and it's skills training. So your therapist will, will tell you, here's what I think is going on. Here's why I think it's happening. Here's what we can do about it. And then the idea is, is like, you're just as smart as I am. So if I can learn to do this, you can learn to do this. So I'm going to teach you everything I know about this so you can learn to be your own therapist. So it's really practical. It's really direct. It's really focused. It's kind of like if you were working with a coach and the coach was trying to break down with you, okay, here's the problem you're having. Here's what we can do about it. Let's learn how to do it together. Okay, yeah. I was actually, because I've been thinking about CBT a lot recently, um, I noticed a lot of my friends will come to me, ask, ask for advice on stoicism because they think stoicism will be the answer. And eventually, sometimes I say to them, I say, I think you need to go to therapy. And they're like, yeah, but all therapists do is talk about my past. They're no help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of, I kind of like pushed them towards CBT, but I don't know too much about it, but then they prefer the idea of it. Um, why is that? Well, I think a lot of folks, um, one are like, we're just so busy, right? It's hard to say like, I don't know that I have time to spend a few years understanding how my childhood affected me. I don't know that I have a few years to understand how these early relationships are affecting my relationships now. Like that's important, but for a lot of folks, when they're coming in for therapy, like there's their life's on fire a little bit. And so it's hard to take the scenic route when you're really hurting. And so what's nice about CBT is it's very pragmatic. It's very direct. Also, it's very collaborative, right? That 
I don't have to have a poker face. I don't have to hide anything from you. You always know exactly what I'm thinking. And it, it tends to be kind of a, a, a quicker and shorter route to get there. Not to say that there's not value for, for that deeper, what we would call it schema therapy from CBT when we're working on the like, um, like early relationship kind of stuff. But usually we don't start there, right? Usually we're starting with, okay, what do you want? What's getting in the way? Let's create a shared understanding. Let's work on it together. Okay, so it's it's just see, it, from the outside in, it just seems way more practical of something mm-hmm. that can actually help straight away. And that that's kind of the way I always looked at Stoicism in comparison to the other philosophies as well. Is like it just seems way more practical and um, relatable, and like it seems like something I can actually do straight away, rather than um, I suppose like some therapies are seem a bit too. Um, a bit too much for people and they have to talk about the feelings and people aren't ready for that, I suppose. I think they're very helpful, but I think that's probably the reason it's most attractive. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing that really sets CBT apart from other therapies is more that's just really focused in the approach. So you're working together to set a clear agenda of what are our goals? How do we work towards them? At every session, you're, you're not showing up and then just kind of seeing what happens, right? At the beginning of the session, your therapist is saying, okay, we have an hour. What do we want to accomplish? What do you want to focus on today? What's our goal for today? And that that focusing is what seems to really make it have be, be a more rapid recovery. Okay, so say um, like when I was younger, I struggled a lot with anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. Would I go to, would I go to um, someone like you and say, um, I need help with anxiety or would it be even more specific than that? Like something uh, as specific as public speaking? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we first we would look to understand um, where specifically is this coming up for you? We would maybe track maybe across a week or two. When are, when are you most anxious? What are those situations? We would look to see in those situations, what is uh, triggering the anxiety? But more specifically, like what are you afraid is going to happen? So, so with social anxiety, a lot of times there's a fear of rejection and a fear of uh, judgment. So we, we would be looking to see like, are, what are you afraid is going to happen? And there's actually a pretty interesting thing that we find with social anxiety. So a lot of people who are socially anxious, they have this pattern they fall into, which kind of uh, recreates the problem that they have. There's this truism of what we call safety behavior or fault safety behaviors, which is you're doing something as a solution, but actually it's a problem. So so if, if you were talking with me and I had just terrible social anxiety, what I would do to correct for that is I would... I would say, well, I don't want to say anything stupid. So let me prepare what I'm going to say before I say it. And then I wouldn't be listening to you. I would be rehearsing in my head what I'm going to say. And I would be going over it over and over and over just to get it exactly right. And I'd say, oh, this is good. I won't come across weird. This will be perfect. And then what would happen is what I say doesn't line up. What I say lines up with what you said like five or 10 minutes ago. And you give me a look like I'm completely loony. You're like, what is going on, Scott? This isn't what we're talking about at all. And then I go, oh, man, I'm so weird. What's wrong with me? And then I double down and I practice even more and even more and even more. So in CBT, we would help these people learn to recognize that, okay, you have this behavioral compensatory strategy, and this compensatory strategy is actually creating the problem. And if we can help these people learn to get lost in the conversation instead of getting lost in their head, then uh, there's there's freedom in that. Suddenly, the conversation is interesting. Suddenly, what I'm saying makes more sense, and I'm getting better feedback from you which is pretty, pretty remarkable. 
Yeah, I mean, that's you're kind of explaining what's happening to me right now is um, I normally come into these with some questions that I, I feel are important to get out. And then whilst you're speaking, I'm thinking, oh, make sure I say this. And then I'm no longer paying attention to you. And I always find it works after like 10 minutes, I stop thinking about the questions and I just start actually talking to the person. And it just flows a lot better. But I guess that was kind of my coping strategy to uh, worrying about not having something to say. Oh, totally. Right. And there's this pressure. Like, what if I don't have anything to say? I mean, the pressure could be on me to find something to say, right? It's not on you, right? I think it's, you've know, got two, two folks, individuals. Well, together, we're finding something interesting to talk about. We have shared interests. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, I suppose the, that, that helps. The pressure's on both of us. So. <laughs> um, you, you said you worked with Aaron T. Beck, and obviously he's the father of, CV, um, he's the father of CBT. Um, did you work closely with him? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I worked, I was one of his CBT trainers in the city of Philadelphia. So it was cool. I went to his house. I, I, I kind of wanted to steal a, like a spoon to keep, but then I felt really bad about it and I didn't. And then later I was like, was that the right decision? And then I was like, yeah, that was, it would have been against my values to steal like a spoon from him, even though it would have been kind of cool to like frame it and put it on the wall. But because in my head, you know, reading, especially of all the Stoic literature and the modern day Stoic literature, you always see his name come up. So in my head, he's sort of like this uh, grand elusive figure. Um, and I've always wondered what he, he was like, what his teachings were like, because mm-hmm. um, I, I think what he did was quite remarkable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of like the modern day Zeno, right? If you think if, if there was like a rebirth of Stoicism, he's sort of, you know, he, he definitely learned from Albert Ellis, but he was better at, um, getting getting the message out there. He did a, be, a better job of rigorously researching CBT to help establish the credibility for it in a, in a way that is, has really um, been global. Uh, practically, though, he was just really charming and really friendly. He had a really good mind for remembering people, remembering who you were. You'd be at a training with him and he would meet somebody from Korea that he saw like 15 years ago. And he would ask them like, hey, how's your kid? And he would name their kid's name. Like just a wild memory for for people and their information but he was just so interested in them and he was and the cool thing about him was like when you watched him work because it wasn't like a a really clinical stilted like academic process but he was really good at teaching skills but just kind of folding them in to the conversation so it, it felt felt very humanistic right it felt very curious and empathic but at the same time he was helping people learn to take a step back look at their thinking, try and find new ways of being, new strategies for moving forward. So that was pretty cool. So he, he basically practiced what he preached in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It just constantly lived up. That's good. That's, that's the way I like to think of uh, Epictetus. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. So I, 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 I want to understand how your sort of journey towards where you are began, because obviously you have quite a lot of interests. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did it go from... Or, where did it go from, say, Socrates um, all the way to CBT? Yeah, good question. Well, I started out, I mean, I was a CBT therapist before I was a Stoic. Um, actually, before I was a CBT therapist, I was a psychodynamic therapist. And I loved that. Um, but my, my people, like, the, the rate of improvement was so slow. And then I got onto, like, an exposure therapy uh, team. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Like, I'm seeing people's lives change. I love this. And then I got kind of pulled in more and more. Um, so as a, a CBT therapist, I was really excited about, you know, the, the the ability to teach people skills to help them overcome the challenges in their life. There's really, there's nothing like sitting with somebody 
and helping them move from a place of being stuck and hopeless, all of a sudden, like that eudaimonia is setting in and like they're flowing and like they're alive again and like moving towards their life. It's just, nothing is like that. It's just fantastic. So I fell in love with CBT and then I went on to become a CBT trainer. And then as a CBT trainer, um, I was uh, doing a lot of training and a lot of work sample review. So a lot of uh, listening to sessions for people that we were training. And in that process, I found that people had a really hard time learning Socratic questioning. Um, and so we we did a, some research on the challenges people were having. The idea being that we could just create like a worksheet and be like, hey, fix fix it up. And we found that with the more research we did, that actually people really struggled with that. A lot of clinicians fall into this pitfall of trying to convince the, pe the therapist, the people they're working with, just to see things from their point of view. Like, let me show you why this is negative. Let me show you why this is distorted. Let me show you why this isn't working well for you. Of course, the challenge is, is humans have what we call a writing reflex, which is if I was to try to convince you of why you're wrong, you're going to lean into why you're right, which isn't what Socratic questioning is, right? Socratic questioning is not about, let me show you why you're wrong. Socratic questioning is, let's break it down together. <laughs> so that was frustrating because I was hoping for an easy fix, but there wasn't an easy fix. So we ended up having to uh, retool the way that we thought about Socratic questioning. We had to come up with a new model for it. We ended up writing a book to help get it out there, which is cool. The book's doing quite well, right? So the book's uh, now been translated into Chinese, Japanese, Turkish, Russian, Portuguese, which is pretty cool, right? To like awesome. put your, your, like, your heart into something. Like, that's, like that book is my child. Like I poured my whole self into it. And it's out there, like people that I've never met are, are reading it. And then like writing emails to me being like, I tried this and my sessions are going better. And then I'm like, this is beautiful. And I love this. But in that process, right, I had to get into the early writings of, Stoic of uh, Socrates. And as I'm reading the early writings of Socrates, suddenly I'm finding like there's a lot going on here that like we don't even talk about ever. What's going on here? And then um, I started reading the, the writings of Donald Robertson, the um, psychologist and Stoic, who's probably knows more about psychology and Stoicism than I'll know about either ever. And so I'm reading his stuff and I'm just falling in love with Stoicism. Like this is like the, the best way to learn it. This is fantastic for me. So uh, he, he has a book, The, the Philosophy of, of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, where he kind of walks you through like, here's all the CBT stuff, but here's actually the philosophical roots for it. And then reading How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and being like, okay, this is my guy. I love this so much. And then moving into like um, the manual, uh, editations and things like that. So then um, learning Stoicism, finding a practice. And the interesting thing about Stoicism is although it lines up really well with Aaron Beck, it actually lines up better with, there's like a modern version of CBT called acceptance and commitment therapy, which the whole idea of, of acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT is um, humans, uh, part of the human experience is going to be unpleasant as part of life is just, uh, not feeling happy all the time, right? You see these drug commercials where people have this like lobotomized life where they're just always happy and things are great all the time. And that's just not the way it is. So part of act is like redefining happiness from constantly feeling, uh, like enjoyment in like a pleasure dopamine kind of way to, flourishing in like a, a meaningful life kind of way, which really is stoicism, right? This idea of like, I I can't control um, aspects of my life, but I can't control how I respond to them. I'm going to try to live a good life. I'm going to focus on creating meaning and value instead of trying to just feel good all the time. So moving from Epicureanism to stoicism. So it's pretty, 
pretty cool. That's like really, really popular right now. And that's that kind of evolved because there were some people who were unsatisfied with um, cognitive therapy, like the original cognitive therapy, where they said, you know, really, it's it's less about trying to change your thoughts to have like happy feelings. It's more about trying to focus on what you have control over and live well. So that's really cool. So then um, uh, in marketing this, this credit questioning book, we ended up reaching a lot of people who weren't therapists. And all of a sudden they were saying like, yeah, okay, I want to learn how to do this. Like, how do I do that? And so we ended up um, putting together basically what would be like a self-help book version of our, of our Socratic questioning book, which then evolved into like a stoicism and, and Socratic wisdom workbook, which is focused on basically like, here's all the skills that you would learn if you were working with a, a, a CBT therapist or an acceptance and commitment therapist. But from the perspective of stoicism and wrapped in like hope, hopefully interesting historical examples, practical worksheets, things like that. So that's kind of how, how I've gotten where I've gotten so far, which I'm continuing to evolve, but I'm certainly, I, certainly I love stoicism and it's interesting how I didn't start here, but now this is, this is my home. That's good. Yeah. I, I mean, I've really just got so involved in stoicism and, um, it, it's something I find interesting is, you know, even with just, um, one bit of text, like say the meditations, I've been reading it for the past 10 years and, um, even Enchiridion, actually, which I've uh, I've got here because I just I went through to get some quotes because I thought they were use, useful for today, and I've read I've read um, the discourses in the Enchiridion so many times, um, and I've put it off for a, maybe a year, and I've just been reading it now, and it seems like a new book. Like I'm like, oh wow, th these teachings are amazing. Um, so it's always about. Um, what what where you are in life and um the perspective you have at that time and i think it's just so useful oh absolutely it's just it's so practical and i and i love that idea that when you revisit something kind of like what you need from it is what you find and so like every time i reread a book it's like a new experience which is pretty cool yeah so um you were saying when you first got into cbt um what you loved about it was seeing the results is there any um standout results or a story that you can like kind of say this this is cbt in action this is someone's life changing because of cbt oh yeah there's a, I mean, uh, so many examples to choose from I, I i remember the very first example that really stuck with me which was i remember when i first was moving from being like a psychodynamic therapist to a cbt therapist and i was really like stressing like okay there's all these worksheets and these techniques and these strategies and i gotta like do it all. And I was really focused on like, almost like just kind of info dumping on this person. And then um, in talking with them, they were like, yeah, this is like a lot, like what's going on. And then like, we, and then we had just like a very simple conversation about their social anxiety. And I, and I, I said like a very simple thing, like, well, maybe like, because you're socially anxious, you're just going to be anxious no matter what, when you approach the situation. So maybe don't stress whether or not you're going to be anxious and just focus on approaching it behaviorally from how you would want to be as a, as a human instead of like instead of trying to not feel bad focus on doing what, what you want to care, what you do what, what matters to you and he was like i never thought about it like that and that just really changed everything for me and this is somebody who had been in therapy for like 10 years and suddenly just like the switch was like oh this is great i love this and i think there's a lot of really cool moments like that where just like learning to approach it from a different perspective changes it for a lot of folks because i think a lot of times in our in our culture, there's this idea of like, there's feelings that are bad, you shouldn't have them. 
right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel depressed. You shouldn't feel anxious. You shouldn't feel angry. You shouldn't feel ashamed. These are all bad feelings. Don't have them. And if you're having them, that's bad. Make them go away. But the, the challenge is like, if you don't want them, you got them, right? If, if I'm anxious and then I'm all of a sudden anxious about being anxious, I'm going to be anxious for the rest of my life because the best way to get anxious is to be afraid of being anxious. But if I can be not afraid of being afraid, then I'm Teflon, then I'm bulletproof, right? Nothing can hurt me then. And so learning to, to see things from, from a, where you're you shifting the framework of what the goal is, it can be a real game changer for people. I mean, that's something that helped me with anxiety is um, it, it's kind of like the dichotomy of control. At some point I went, um, I was reading some sort of literature and it's saying, you know, just focus on your character. Um, kind of basically just go in there and be a good person, it, like in the simplest form. And then when I do things where normally I'd get anxious, um, I just remind myself, like, I just need to be good. Like, oh, so what if I start stuttering or I, I get nervous, I'm, I'm shaking. If I'm being a good person, no one can really fault me. Um, and it's like you were saying with the, like, running away from that thing. Like, say you get anxiety, you start, like, trying to put plasters on it. You're like, oh, I'm getting that feeling. I need to do this, I need to do this. And it's just like, it, like it's keep, you keep bottling up and it's just getting worse and worse. Oh, Absolutely. And then, I mean, and the challenge is those, all those kind of like meta experiences pull you out of what's actually happening, right? You're, and then the, once you're no longer in the interaction because you're you're stuck in your head criticizing yourself for the way you're in the interaction, then you're actually going to do really poorly, right? If you're, if you like, if, if I stutter and then I spend the, like the next ten minutes being like Scott, you're such an idiot. Why would you do that? This is being recorded. You're so dumb. Then I'm going to stutter even more, and it's going to be even worse. But if I stutter and say, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. That that's what's what's done is done. I can't go back and change it. I can say I could I could try and like pick like a positive thought of like this makes me more, more relatable, but that doesn't really matter because I don't really care about that. But the, the truth is like I can't change what happened, right? What I can change is I can change this very moment. Yes, yeah, so I remember I think I seen like a infographic on your page about the uh, depression rumination cycle. And um something that I used to be in is like a and it still happens sometimes, but like a rumination cycle, especially with, you know, say I had this podcast today with you, uh, the week, the whole week leading up to it, I'd be ruminating like, oh, how, what if he does this? What if I say this? Oh, what if I forget his name? What if I, and it was just never, ever helpful. And one day I just thought, if my years of life and practice uh, and research, everything, uh, my uh, reading of Stoic literature, everything, if that's not good enough, for me to have just a conversation with someone, then this week of stressing myself out is really not going to be helpful. But can you just explain that cycle or how to get out of that cycle? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's first just, uh, it's useful to have a good understanding of just, the brain does a lot of things that like, we're, are useful in some ways, but like make us completely miserable in other ways. Um, we kind of have like a, a new brain that evolved, that's like retrofitted on top of an old brain, right? We have this like, limbic system which is really geared towards like giving us like way too many brain chemicals to help us like run for our life or fight for our life evolutionarily it was more dangerous to underreact than to overreact and so we're really good at getting really anxious really angry really strong emotions because there's times in our there's times in our in our history that was really important to have or it was advantageous to have the challenges is now you or i sitting in like uh, temperature controlled places. Like there's no, there's no bear coming for me right now. I still can have those same brain chemicals coming at me. 
And on top of that, we have this new brain, which 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 evolved to kind of overthink. Because that's how we solve things like pasteurization. That's how we solve all of these like really cool things that are important for, for life now, but um, maybe aren't always really helpful. So the brain is really good at overthinking and, are, and we're really good at kind of overfeeling with that. And so part of our job is to not, not, not let our, our runaway thoughts run away with us. So the idea of rumination kind of comes from the way that uh, like, like a cow stomach might work, right? So I'm not uh, a veterinarian. So I, I know that my understanding of like cow stomachs isn't exactly right, but I think cows have a few stomachs, but they're all interconnected and they have like a ruminative digestive system, right? So they can eat grass, which I can't eat. And they'll chew it and then they'll digest it partially. And then they'll kind of like vomit it up and chew it a little bit and digest it a little bit. And it's kind of like, like kind of vomiting and redigesting and vomiting and redigesting is kind of this ruminative digestive system, which is we we use that term in psychology to refer to we we mentally do this too, right? We're all something will happen. Like maybe I say something kind of embarrassing. Like like in one of my group therapists, group therapies for a while, I run a, like a stoicism resilience group and I called uh, Epictetus Epictitus. And somebody was like, did you, did you just say Epictitus? And then like I was like, oh my gosh, that's embarrassing. Of course, I'm like a dude living in Texas, right? It's impressive that I can pronounce even like English words, let alone these other things. So I I could ruminate on that, right? I could like that night be like, oh man, I can't believe I said every Titus. That's so dumb of me. I said it in front of everybody. And then I could kind of like digest it a little bit. And then the next day I'd be like, I don't even know what I'm doing as a person. Like what, like, what else am I doing wrong? And I could kind of digest it back and go over it again and again and again. And so and yeah, what we find from like a cognitive science perspective is every time you think about something, the memory's reconsolidated. So if I'm focusing on all my shortcomings, every time I think about it, the way the way I'm thinking about it affects the way I remember it. And the way I'm thinking about it then affects the way I re-encode the memory. So people's memory and self-narrative tends to become more extreme the more they ruminate. If I have this idea that I'm a loser and things will never get better, I really honestly believe that because my brain tells me it's true. Factually, it's not actually true, but I've... Uh, I've focused on certain parts of the narrative over and over and over again, where it literally changes my memory of it. It literally changes the way that I view the situation. So part of understanding the uh, depressive rumination cycle is recognizing that when you're really depressed, things are going to seem worse than they actually are. Mood-dependent memories is a very real thing. If we take people with clinical depression and we put them in a lab and we make something good happen to them. And then we ask them, hey, did this good thing happen? They don't remember it. Not because like they're like insufferable or ungrateful, but they literally just can't. The part of your brain that's active when you're depressed is part of the brain that's different when you're really happy. So it's hard when you're really depressed, it's hard for you to remember the good times. It's hard for you to remember the love. It's hard for you to remember the hope. And so it's really easy to, to fall into this really like overly negative place. And so part of the of that cycle is helping recognize that the story you're telling yourself might not be the whole story, which is why in CBT, we'll do some logging, right? We'll try and figure out, well, what's the story you tell yourself? What's the part of the story you typically uh, pay attention to? What are the part of the stories you typically miss? Let's start logging that. Let's start tracking what you don't, so you can balance out the narrative, not to only focus on that, but so you can see the whole story. You know, there in, uh, in undergrad psychology, you often learn about this idea of depressive realism. This idea that people who are depressed are like more realistic than folks who aren't depressed. 
And that is one of like the most mischaracterized like things ever, because it's not when you look at the actual research, they're not saying people with clinical depression are more realistic. They're saying people in undergrad classes who are slightly more depressed than the rest of the folks who are still subclinical aren't making errors of being overly confident in the positive direction. They're not saying that they're more realistic. They're just saying people who are slightly depressed are maybe less overconfident, which is, which is different than like clinical depression and realism and things like that. Yeah, so um, I, I like this example of the, the cow uh, chewing the grass. And um, the way I was thinking it, just correct me if I'm wrong, is if the grass is the thought, so you have this belief about yourself or this um, memory, um, every time it's chewed, redigested, it comes out of, as just like um, what, you, what you're wanting from it. So you, you've picked out from the grass that you're a loser. And then the next time you digest that, all you've got is this idea of you being a loser. And now you can pick more from that same idea. So the more times it's digested, the more times you ruminate on this thought, the more, um, I suppose, of an echo chamber you can go down. Abs echo chamber is a perfect word for that. Where you're becoming, this thing becomes more and more important as you're only focusing on that. Right, so... Instead of going out and gathering new new experiences, instead of trying to get a, a more diverse array of uh, what's going on in the world or, or who you are as a person, we hold on to these stories and then we 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 tend to see what we expect to see and we tend to remember what we expected to see. And, and what's the best way um, if if right now you know um, I say something embarrassing in this call and after it mm -hmm. after it I'm like oh god Scott thinks I'm an idiot. Um, what's the best way to snap out of that? Well, I mean, I, I, I first might take a step back and say, like, let's say you did say something silly on the call, like, which I could, who knows? Um, and then, and if I did actually judge you for that, let's say I thought, like, oh man, William's an idiot. I can't believe he said that. That's crazy. He confused uh, Junius Rusticus with Masonius Rufus. What an <laughs> idiot, right? Uh, if I actually like judged the totality of who you were based on that incident, like, that would be pretty foolish of me. Um, so, so you could say, like, what's the likelihood Scott's actually doing this? What else could he be saying? Did, what's the likelihood this is really happening? Which is one level. But if you could take a step back and say, you know, if he's going to, like, cast me aside because of that one thing, like, maybe Scott doesn't have good judgment. Maybe I don't care what he has to say. Which which is kind of what, what like, Seneca and Epictetus would talk about, this idea of, like, um, like, if somebody doesn't have good judgment, like, why do you care what their judgments of you are? Yeah, I remember a lot of people always like kind of send me messages about like gym anxieties, going to the gym, they're worried what people will say. And that was kind of my answer, you know, if, if even if there is someone that is looking at you, judging you for being in the gym, um, what sort of person are they? They're going to the gym to judge people like it, 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 they're not even worth listening to. And I, I think that's helped a lot of people, just that simple idea. Oh, totally. Right. Because I think like we... Um... If we're working with like a kid in high school who's like worried that people are talking about them, you know, we could help them see that maybe people aren't thinking about you the way they are. And that's helpful. That's helpful. But if we can get them to the place where they can say, maybe people are talking about me, but like, so what? Why do I care about it? You know, there's, there's an imperviousness that comes from that. Because the truth is, is some people might be gossiping because high school is a, a challenging place. But if you if you live your life based on wanting other people to like you, Oftentimes you end up being a version of yourself that isn't who you want to be and who you like. So you can't please everyone. And if you're trying to please them, you're not going to please yourself. 
which means you're, you're ultimately not going to be living by your values, which is to my, from my view, worse than like having some people judge you. If I was to be somebody that everybody liked, but I fucking hated myself. Oh, I don't know if I can say that on this call, but if I like hated myself, uh, that would be worse. I would be more unhappy than if there were some people who didn't like me. And I said like, okay, that that's fine. Pragmatically, uh, what I like to do with some of the folks I'm working with sometimes if this comes up is I might ask them, what's your favorite movie? What do you think is the best movie of all time? And let's say they say like Shawshank Redemption, best movie of all time, which it may be. I don't know how you really- Lord of the Rings. Which, Lord of the Rings, fantastic. Which one? Uh, the, uh, two the, Towers? The, trilogy. Oh, the whole trilogy. Okay. Right then. So let's say somebody says, Lord of the Rings, best movie of all time. I say, cool. I'm going to pull up Amazon. I'm going to look at the reviews. And then I'm going to filter by one-star reviews. And I'm going to start reading them the one-star reviews of Lord of the Rings. And there's going to be some people who just hate it. There's going to be some people who are going to say, like, this is like a, a crazy movie. This is propaganda. This editing, this is too long. Somebody hates Lord of the Rings. And if we're going to read those and then say, okay, but does this change your opinion of Lord of the Rings? You're going to say, no, like, I love Lord of the Rings. This is fantastic. I'm going to watch the extended edition every Christmas. And it's like a, it's like a whole weekend <laughs> and I love it. Um, and he, so if Lord of the Rings can have some people who absolutely hate it and still be beautiful... You can go to the gym and have some people give you a one-star review and like, what do you care? Right? You're, you're trying to be your own version of Lord of the Rings. So, so do you think that there's a strong importance then? And what I'm getting from that is there's a strong importance on uh, self-love or self-acceptance. Like, as long as you accept yourself, you love yourself, or you, even you like yourself, um, sort of like if you like film, it doesn't really matter what the other people say. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's the challenge is you want that self-acceptance, but not like in a like in a cheap kind of way, right? You don't want to coddle yourself because the goal isn't to like blindly approve everything you do because sometimes I screw up, right? Sometimes yeah. I need to do better. Um, I think about, so in like in parenting, sometimes we think about the this difference between like permissive parenting um, or like, or like, or overly intrusive, like really strict parenting. And neither of those is really ideal, right? There's this middle path we call like authoritative parenting, like gentle, but firm. And that kind of gentle but firm attitude with yourself where I'm not beating myself up because that's not actually helpful. But I'm also not coddling myself and being too lax on myself because that's also not really helpful where I'm going to have firm expectations for myself and I'm not going to beat myself up for what happened because it's already happened. I'm going to say, okay, Scott, do better. Here's what you got to do. Move forward. Yeah, I like that. that. That's kind of how I see stoicism is, is sort of like a, you know, a, it's not lying to yourself. It's not this toxic positivity. It's seeing the reality of what's happening um, and going, right, I, I can do better. I can I can have power to control this and let's do it. Um, earlier, you was talking about, um, you was comparing the world we're living in today, um, saying, you know, there's not the, uh, at least for me, there's not these dangers that we used to face a long time ago. There's no lion chasing us. Um, yeah, I think... Now, more than ever in this day and age, people are looking for resilience. Like pe people are searching online, they're trying to read books on resilience. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think there's a, a whole host of reasons to go with it. I think there's a, an, an incredible amount of pressure, right? There's research to show that the average high school kid now has as much anxiety as like, a, like an inpatient psychiatric patient would have like a few decades ago. 
Like there's just an incredible amount of pressure. People are worrying about the state of the world. They're worried about what's going to come. We're, we're connected to this kind of bad news machine where if anything traumatic or bad or terrible or upsetting happens in the world, I immediately know about it. And not only do I immediately know about it, I'm seeing pictures of it. I'm seeing videos of it. I'm reading of it. I'm exposed to like an incredible amount of information and also an incredible amount of just heartbreaking information. So, and the the brain doesn't differentiate from that, right? If I'm, if, if there's like a, a plane crash and I'm reading about it, it's, it's not just like a story. My brain treats it as if it's happening right here in real time with me. And so if I'm holding on to all of these things day after day after day after day, it's just an incredible amount of information to go through. Um, I think also people are just kind of more aware of like, there's a, of like, I want tools, I want strategies. Um, kind of, I mean, the other side of information is like people have learned like information is power. People are trying to find tools or they they found there were there were these kind of false promises of like the self-esteem movement and positive thinking, which is really both of them have kind of flopped. Um, and so I think people are looking for something more more real and substantive, sub substantive. See, I said I, I said a word wrong and now I'm going to go I, as soon as we're done, I'm going to say uh, William's going to think I'm just a dumb American. I can't do anything right. Wow. <laughs> you know, because um, the you're saying now, seeing like a plane crash on the news causes the same sort of, uh, provokes the same feelings or some some sort of um, feelings. Um, and it, it, can that be used in a positive way, like you're saying about positive thinking? If, um, on, in a simple way, if I keep looking at good news, good news, good news, does that have any impact on me? You know, I think it, does depending on the way you approach it, right? I think if you're approaching it from a perspective of like, there's good things happening in the world, I want to like kind of nourish myself from that. I think that's helpful. Sometimes that becomes kind of an emotional avoidance though, right? If you say like, like this idea of like only positive thoughts, only positive vibes, only positive experiences. And if it's sort of like um, kind of the downside of the self-care movement is there's a lot of people who now pamper themselves, but like kind of have to pamper themselves. Like if you view self-care as like bubble baths and um, things like that, like that's that's nice and pleasant. But if but we sort of uh, we we adjust to whatever the circumstances of our life are, right? So if if we're spoiling ourselves, we get used to being spoiled, and it's no longer spoiling; it's just baseline. Um, so if you're constantly like looking at like very positive things online because like you're trying to just have as much positivity in your life, it can that can uh, not fit the reality that we're living in as well. So, I, so, but I think it's just, it's all about how deliberate we are. The, my goal is as, a, as a therapist and as a stoic is not to only focus on positive things, but to have an openness to, to recognize that there's, there's joy and pain in life. And I want to be open to all of it because I want to be a participant in life. I want to be fully engaged and I want to focus on living a good life. That's a good way to live. You know, some I, I used to kind of use this positive um, news as a way to help me. But maybe once a month, um, you know, if I felt a bit lost, um, without direction, felt a bit down, uh, there was two subreddits I'd go to on Reddit. One was um, humans being bros. And, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. And made me smile. And I'd, I'd go, every, once a month, I'd go top of this month and I'd look through the stuff and it would just remind me, I was like, there is good people in this world doing good things. Um, I can do the same. And that helped like break the, you know, if I was going down a bit of a spiral, it would help break it. And then I'm like back, back on my feet and uh, ready to go. Yeah, I love that. 
I mean, it sounds like you were intuitively kind of correcting for the way the news cycle tends to focus on things that are sensational. Because the challenge is, is, is that the, the, uh, our new system is like everything else that's going on right now. It, it's it's fed by what's what gets clicks, right? What tends to get clicks is what's what's heartbreaking, what's horrific, what's sensational. And so we tend to be kind of sensationalized to that in a way. But if you can, you're saying like, I, I see a lot of bad news. I see a lot of pain. I see a lot of people not being bros. Let me let me try and find some, some, some people who are being kind to each other, right? People who are doing good things. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I always say, you know, because um, a lot of my friends are always, always saying, and pe- people on social media are always saying like, oh, the, the world's just the worst place. It's just terrible. Because um, I see it, I see it all the time. It's like, no one's ever going to share a normal article. Mm-hmm. Like just the most mundane article about normal life. No one's ever going to share it because it's not interesting. So you're only going to see these extremes. And there's a quote I really like. Um, um paraphrasing it, but it says something like, uh, somewhere some phoneless fool is unaware of how anxious and scared he's supposed to be. <laughs> and I, I just love it because I do think if you, you know, sometimes if we just got rid of our phone and got rid of it all, we won't be aware of all these random things going on that are supposed to, like the drama, the bad news, that people are, are wrapping themselves up in. Oh, absolutely, right? If we, if I could turn my phone off for a couple of days and I could just like, I could just read a book. I could just go like sit and listen to like birds chirping in my neighborhoods. Like it would be people pay thousands of dollars for the for the privilege of of that. Yeah, but then I guess you'd miss a lot of emails and a lot of yeah. I'd have a lot of push notifications. Facebook will send me a text message because I don't check Facebook. It's pretty pretty amazing how that happens, right? Like I get it's like you haven't been on for a couple of days. Here's somebody posted this picture. I'm like, oh my God, that, why is this happening? This is it's like a horror movie. I hope you're enjoying this talk with Scott. It gets much better as I ask Scott um, towards the end about his uh, passion and his expertise, which of course is Socrates. Um, he's an enthusiast. He knows so much about Socrates and it was great to hear the insights. You know, Socrates was idolized by the Stoics. They learned so much from him and hearing insights into Socrates' life, his teachings from an expert was incredible. But today's episode is powered by Huel. Huel is a quick, affordable, nutritiously complete food with everything that your body needs. And Huel is what I have every day. When when I was writing my book, when I'm currently doing my writings now, I make sure I've got Huel with me um, as it's quick. And I know that I'm getting everything my body needs. It's tasty. And rather than, you know, partway through writing, I get hungry and I'm looking for something. Maybe I'll quickly nip to the shops and buy some rubbish, waste a load of money on something that's unhealthy or nip to a fast food place. Um, if I've got my fuel with me, either the drinks or the meals, I know that I've got something tasty and nutritious and getting all the protein I need for my workouts and getting all the nutrition I need for my brain. So... I hope you enjoyed the rest of the talk. But yeah, so so say there's a lot of people now, I'm very aware that most people, uh, at least from their, uh, from their own action, that they are looking for, I guess people are becoming aware of it, you know, the more we're seeing of all this stuff, people are starting to go, maybe this isn't the right thing, or maybe this is really deeply affecting me in a, in a bad way. And people are looking for answers. And like I said, people are looking for resilience. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you, because you've wrote a bit, quite a bit about resilience. Why do you think resilience is important and how can you build resilience? You know, say 
um, I am, um, I think it's mostly affected to like teenagers. So someone, someone, a teenager, maybe they've just left school and they're going into the workplace, they've got all this anxiety, they're wrapped up in social media, you know, and they're really struggling. How would they build resilience from that point? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the, 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 the goal of stoicism and the, the goal of resilience is to be able to bounce back when, when things happen. Um, and so that's really valuable because we can't really, you can't protect people from all, all the, the carnage that happens with life. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen unexpectedly. It's, there's no one's getting out of life alive. No one's escaping unscathed. So the idea of resilience is, is it's less about trying to kind of only focus on positive things. But from my perspective, the best way to approach resilience is uh, in CBT, we call it stress inoculation training. Um, in uh, stoicism, I can never pronounce it correctly, but uh, premeditatio malorum, this idea of like premeditating on how things could go wrong. To me, that is resilience because I'm not premeditating in like a in a pessimistic or like a like a victim kind of perspective, right? I'm not thinking about here's everything bad that's going to happen today, and like this is so terrible, I can't stand it. This is going to be uh, unbearable. Instead, I'm thinking about well, here's everything that could go wrong, and here's how I could overcome it. Uh, here's this, uh, I'm going to give a talk, and there's this uh, guy who's going to be there, and he might ask me a question that might be kind of harsh, but I can handle that. I can view myself, I can anticipate what can go wrong, and I can I can see myself being resilient. And that prospective memory, that planning and imagery about how to overcome it, from, from a data perspective, it's really good for facilitating recovery. From an ancient wisdom perspective is how, how we focus on desaturating um, these negative things that could happen, coping ahead so we don't so, so we can respond instead of react. Yeah, you know what? I get I always um promote premeditation malorum. And the normal reply I get is like, oh, but isn't that just negative thinking and leads to rumination? And I'll give a reply that um like takes me quite a while to explain why it's not and you know it's normally uh works for this person but the way you just explained it then is like it's much more simple is you're not thinking about it from a victim point of view it's a constructive exercise um mm -hmm. and i think that solves a lot at least in my mind you're doing it it's a productive exercise to um predict i guess um prepare yourself for what's about to happen you know like uh epictetus it the one that i like is you know epictetus talks about going to the public baths and you know you're gonna, you're gonna get pushed splashed shoved um all these kind of things and i started using that you know um i know throughout my day there's there is going to be rude people on the bus there'll be rude people um people might say stuff i might miss the bus um or the, the bus might be early and i miss it whatever um all these things happen every single day um and i just started thinking like if i know that these things happen every single day why, why do i keep letting them happen to me and disturbing me why do i keep letting this ruin my day when i'm aware like this rude person's at work every single day they're at work and they're rude like um and i, I guess in a way if i prepare myself to meet those people i accept that they're a person it removes their power oh absolutely i mean once you um, except that this is reality is the way it is, right? You're not saying I've accepted where I'm happy that this person's a rude person, but I know like this is the job I have. This is the guy I work with. I'm stuck here. I might as well make the most of it. Like if I'm driving to work and there's traffic and I'm mad that there's traffic, why am I mad there's traffic? I live in a city. This is the way traffic is. Like there's no, there's been traffic every day for the past five, 10, 15 years. Like there's no reason there's not going to be traffic today. Why? 
why would I sit in traffic and just be furious instead of saying, well, this is this is exactly what I expected. Good news is, is I have a podcast queued up. Good news is I made fancy coffee. I get a drink while I'm driving. Good news is, is I got some time uh, just to myself to uh, sit and think and chill. And how can I kind of make the most of it? I, yeah, I think um, I like the Epictetus um, example you use. I often use the, the Marcus Aurelius one, which I think is based on the Epictetus one. The idea of like when I when I rise in the morning, I'm going to let myself know. I'm going to deal with like all sorts of like miserable bastards today. And I'm not going to be uh, mad at them, right? I'm, I'm going to recognize that maybe they haven't welcomed stoicism into their heart yet. I'm going to recognize that they have a nature just like my own and that we're meant to work together. Not going to, not going to be uh, really upset about it. Yeah. I, I remember on, um, I was using that like on social media, uh, you know, on social media, you, you get a lot of hate, hate messages just from, uh, I don't know. I think the more you put yourself out there, the more you get a lot of, um, good interaction, but the more bad interactions you get, you get a lot of hate. And I remember I had this like, um, idea or a game where I thought um, the worse the message is, the worse, this, worse thing this person's saying so, the more they need the help from stoicism. So I'd, I would go like, right, this is a good challenge for me to try actually explain something to someone, not in a, a false positive way or a way just to like shut them up, in a way where they can actually read the message and go like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't have sent this or maybe I can learn from this. Mm-hmm. And you know, nine times out of 10, um, well, most of the people would reply and say, oh, I, I didn't mean this, I like what you do. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, I'd send a message there. Uh, but then the, the other people would read what I put and then they'll, they'll say something like, oh, okay, I'm going to read more. Oh, I'm sorry about this. Um, and I, I just love that perspective. And I use that in life now, like the, um, you know, big challenges, rude people, these kind of things. I think uh, the more of it is a challenge to you, but, but the more you can learn from it. Absolutely. This reminds me of my actually my favorite Epictetus quote. Uh, I should know this one by heart, but I don't. But essentially, that idea of like the, the two handles, right? Like in every situation, there's the there's the the handle that lifts and the handle that doesn't, right? You're saying that in these situations, I could try and grasp onto like the I could this idea that people are are coming at me, right? They're being these keyboard warriors, and I could they're trying to like come at me, like you come for the king, you best not miss. Like I got you. I could definitely just eviscerate you. But why would I do that? I'm not going to lift them up. Instead, I could say, well, let me hold on to the hand of the lifts, right? You're you're my brother. We have a shared experience. And if I can lean into that kind of shared experience, this connection we have, I can hold on to the shared humanity. That's something that lifts, and you see that. And like, even in in a place as like surreal and sometimes toxic as social media, you find that if I approach this from the perspective of I want to lift instead of I want to destroy, then that handle actually does lift. That's pretty cool. That is cool. It, it just reminded me of Marcus Aurelius' quote because um, um, that's the way I've tried to see a lot of see the world. It's like Marcus Aurelius says that everyone is. Uh, I don't know, a quote akin to our own, that not of blood, but of um, basically like um, this d- divine spark that we've got from God um, mm-hmm. has been put in all of us. We're all, we all have this in us. We're all of the same nature. Um, and I feel like Mox Aurelius used to see everyone as um, a part of him, himself. Because um, there's a quote I'm thinking, but I can't get it off the top of my head. It's not like he didn't see people as like a brother or sister. It is that he is a part, they are a part of him, he's part of them. So, um, you know, doing good to them is also doing good for himself. Um, and since, since I've been looking at the world that way, it has helped that, you know, if, if someone's being rude, actually me being nice to them, not in uh, like a, 
being walked over way, but actually doing something productive in a way that I can help them be a better person. Um, it helps me to be a better person towards me, to be a better person towards others, to be a better person towards the world. Um, and I think it's, it's a really difficult way to see the world. I think if someone's capable of it, I think it's a very powerful way to see the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I like how you're highlighting this distinction of like, I want to be nice to them, but not in like I'm a pushover or a doormat. I don't want to, I don't want to um, enable this, this behavior that, which is being disrespectful to myself because I, I don't want to disrespect myself, right? If somebody's insulting you. You're not, you're not agreeing with them and belittling yourself to be nice to them, but, but you're also not cowering. And a lot of ways that attitude is kind of what therapists try to help people apply to themselves, right? We try to say like, okay, you have this handle that you're trying to lift yourself from where you're just eviscerating yourself and actually you're punching yourself down. You can't lift yourself up and punch yourself down at the same time. How can I hold on to this kind of like gentle perspective with myself where I'm not coddling myself or deluding myself because that's gross and that's not helpful, but I can, I can be kind, but also try and inspire myself to, to do better. Yeah, well, like it's like you say about not being a doormat, you know. Um, if someone's rude to you and your belief is that you need to do what's best for them, um, what's best for them is not letting them walk all over people because you're allowing them to develop bad habits and become a worse person. So that's not best for them. And, and I guess it's hard to ever work out what is best for someone. But um, using wisdom, I guess you can get to some conclusion. But sometimes people, you know, the best conclusion is for someone to be put in their place and said, hey, like, you, you need to stop doing this. And um, maybe a bit firmer than that. I don't think that would stop anyone doing stuff that, that would stop anyone. But if you can be firm with someone, then maybe that's exactly what they needed. Um, like, it's kind of extending your love to them in a way you know i guess um the way i used to say to people like to look after themselves is to like love themselves as they love someone else so like you know someone you love if they're doing bad things bad habits you would give them the harsh truth if you really love them you'd say you need to stop doing this um you're not going to be happy about it but you need to stop this and i think that's what we need to do for ourselves but then even for strangers um like I was saying, if someone's being rude in public and you decide that um, you're going to stand up and do something, then being harsh to them, giving them the harsh truth can actually help them. Yeah, absolutely. I always think about this as like if, if you had a friend who was using like all natural organic deodorant, like you would pull them aside and you'd be like, look, it's not working. You really smell. No one, we're talking about it and we're not telling you about it, but like you need to know this is not working. Like as a friend, you smell. And the friend who will do that, the friend who will pull you aside and say, hey, Scott, like we, I know that you're you're using deodorant because you got good hygiene, but like if you're using alcohol natural stuff, it's not doing the trick. Like that friend is like my best friend because like that, I really need to know that. If we're interpersonally wearing like all natural deodorant, like somebody needs to tell me because like, I want to know. That's not, that's not how I want to present myself to the world. So how, if someone said that to you, how do you get over that sting? And not, not just in those terms, but like sometimes life's harsh to us. People can be harsh, but we can see the truth in it. But mm -hmm. because it hurts, because it stings, we avoid that. How do you get over that? Right. Well, I think first I hope that my friend doesn't like tell me in front of like the whole world. I hope that I'm not, I'm not like giving like a best man speech and someone's like, you stink. Like I, I might, I might have some feelings about that. Um, but I think in that moment, right, if somebody says this to me, even if they don't deliver it well, right, I think I have to say like, is this information th that I want? And, and 
and what can I do about it? Because it, it it's if somebody tells you that you smell, like you can't tell them, no, I don't. It's just like you have to believe them. And I, I have to I have to make changes based on that. It'd be like if somebody told you like you're being an asshole, you can't say, no, I'm not being an asshole. You have to say, I didn't realize. Okay, well, thanks for telling me. Let me let me think about this. Let me see what I can do better. Because um, ultimately, I think it depends on what your goal is, right? If your goal is is to never have anybody say anything about you that isn't purely positive, if your goal is to only be comfortable all the time, like you're in for a rude awakening because life is challenging and it's painful. Even if you're doing the best you can, you're going to screw up. Uh, but the cool thing is, is you can get feedback from other people that can help you do better. So, so my goal is to have the kind of relationship with myself and other people that if somebody says something to me that maybe isn't what I want to hear, that it doesn't destroy me because I recognize that like who I am as a human is more than my odor in this particular moment. And then I can, and I can, I can do better. Yeah. The way, the way I see it a lot is, um, I learned this from Marcus Aurelius. It's about seeking truth. Um, and you know, the truth can't harm us because it has no mind to care. Um, and, I think that's a powerful tool seeking the truth uh, because you know so if someone says say someone does say you, you smell and you can either not seek the truth and you can go no I don't and avoid it and for the rest of your life you will smell now that's not that's not the worst thing it's not as bad as like a moral blindness or, mm -hmm. or doing something bad but um, then if you seek the truth and you go well maybe I do smell enough people have said it maybe I do then you can fix the problem and I think that's the same with um, you know, character. If someone points out that you've got a character flaw, um, you can avoid it to protect yourself. But if you seek the truth, then eventually you'll figure out that, oh yeah, I am doing this thing. Um, how do I fix this? How do I solve this? How do I become a, a better person? And I think a lot of the answers, at least for me, lie in having core principles like the um, virtues. I, I think as long as there's those guiding principles that you can kind of always fall back on and say like, um, am I being wise? Am I being courageous? Am I being just? Um, am I being moderate? Th these kind of things, I think, if you've got that there, it's something that can at least guide you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and from what you're saying, the main thing I'm taking away is perspective, right? If you have a big picture perspective, then th these, this feedback I get in the moment is just one data point and it's not going to sway who i am or or my the story i tell myself about who i am instead i'm going to say okay well that's information i can modify what i'm doing i can try and do better but i'm not going to be i'm not going to have the totality of who i am invested in whether or not people think i smell good because my values are is i want to be a good person right my value is i want to leave the world a better place than i found it i want to i want to lift the people that i care about and so if somebody gives me feedback that can help me do that better, great. That's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. You know, something I wanted to go back to, we was talking about, because um, I think it's really important, we was talking about being a doormat. Um, mm -hmm. And I get a lot of criticism on stoicism, because uh, especially when you talk about like accepting your fate, accepting what is, then this, this kind of stuff, um, um, extending your love to others, um, all, the, all these quotes that people might read. Um, I always get messages saying like, oh, stoicism is just a way of coping. You know, they're just, um, the Stokes are just doormats. They let people do what they want. Um, how can you kind of 
prove that that's not true, that the Stoics weren't doormats. Yeah, fantastic. We have we actually have, there's a whole chapter of that in the Stoicism workbook on uh, and Stoic interpersonal effectiveness because so there is a risk of people like not understanding Stoicism fully and thinking like oh well if, the, if it's not um, how things it's not what happens but it's how I make sense of things that happens then if I'm bothered it must be the story I'm telling myself and therefore I'll just change my story and I'll just kind of accept whatever comes my way in this like really fiercely like fiercely stoic kind of way but i don't i don't think that's actually what stoicism is right i think i think stoicism is like if somebody is hurting me right if somebody if my rights are being violated um that I, I i'm not gonna the goal isn't to just stoically sit and tolerate it and, and put up with this forever but but i am going to try and approach this from a wise perspective right so the the wise stoic is going to recognize that what happened has happened and then they're going to focus on the dichotomy of control they're going to figure out what they have control over and they're going to try to move move forward with it. When we look at like, like social issues, I think that it's interesting to look at how um, people who have been involved in um, these areas have, have, have had, have been informed by stoicism, but kind of like in a collective action kind of way, like this idea of like, like if my boss is mistreating me, like I don't really have power over my boss in a way where I can do that, but the workers together, right? They're, they're, we're going to have collective bargaining, rights, And so my, so my dichotomy of control is small, but together our dichotomy of control is larger. So, it, but, so it's more about how do we how to be wise and how do we focus on trying to work in a way that's going to be effective. Yeah, I suppose in a case where someone's uh, rude to you, you know, you, ha you have control over your uh, judgment of the situation and mm -hmm. how you assess it. Um, and I think a lot of people are struggling because they see things from a victim point of view. So their assessment is based on them being a victim, them being powerless. Um, and I think if people start to realize that they do have power, um, they have power over these certain things in their life that they do control, they have power over, um, then when you assess it, you're not going, oh, I'm a victim. You go, you accept what's happened. You're going, right, this thing's happened. Now, I see that it's happened, um, and what can I do now? And then you, you can sort of assess what's best to do, what's, what, what is the best thing you can do after that. And I think using you know, wisdom, uh, you reach a better conclusion, and you don't get lost in being a victim of what has happened to you. Because ultimately, what has happened to you can't change. It's happened. So all you have control over is this present moment and your um, thoughts on the present moment and where you go from here. Yeah. Well, and, and if somebody was like a little rude to me, I can't control the way they, they view me. I can't control what they say, what they do. I can control what I say and what I do. The, the challenge is sometimes, um, you know, justice is one of the core values. And sometimes people will think about justice as like retribution, but that's not that's not Stoic justice, right? Stoic justice is like impartial fairness and benevolent kindness. So I'm going to be fair to myself. I'm not going to keep myself in a situation that's harmful for myself, but I'm not, my goal isn't to be a vigilante. Um, I'm going to recognize that like what you're saying, like I might not want to stay in the situation where this is happening, but my goal isn't to hurt you the way you hurt me. My goal is to be a good person. My goal is to focus on trying to create instead of destroy. I think that's a good way of looking at it, that the Stoic virtues, they actually also extend to yourself. I think people often think, you know, you, you, um, it's 
justice for the world or whatever like that's kind of idea they get when they first hear uh, about stokes need to uh, follow justice they, they get the idea but i suppose like you're saying you know you need to be uh, fair to yourself and um benevolent to yourself um that's a good way of looking at things how how is stoicism can you this is a question i get asked a lot and i, I struggle so much to answer it because um i can never sum it up um, i'm just going to ask you anyway um how has Stoicism helped you? Immensely, immensely, right? I think um, one of the main things that's really um, helped me from a Stoic perspective is there's the wisdom to recognize what I do and don't have control over. I think dichotomy of control is, is a big it's a big factor in, in my life and the people that I work with. Um, but I think for me, the main thing beyond that is trying to recognize like what's what's the goal right because I I have a lot of energy I can try and like work on trying to do something but it's easy for me to try and invest that in like hedonism right it's easy for me to try and invest that in like I want as much like dopamine as possible I want to um get lost in kind of these things that feel good but maybe are are self-indulgent um like trying to like trying to optimize as much uh dopamine as I can get trying to optimize as much happy as I can get uh, but if if I chase that, right, I might not be building the kind of life I want to have, right? But I think if I can focus more on what really matters to me and then how do I move in the direction of that, right? And in, in, in modern, you know, therapy language, you might say, accept your feelings, choose your direction, take action, um, right? So if I can spend, if I can be less worried about, am I feeling good all the time and more worried about what do I want to do with the time that I have? And how do I take constructive action towards that? The, the fulfillment that comes, like the long-term happiness that comes from living a good life is way better than like the short-term thrill of trying to trying to escape the misery of, of everyday life. Yeah, I like that. You know, I'm glad you could sum it up because every time someone asks me, I just say stoicism's helped in every single way. Uh, it helps. It helps every single day in every situation. And a lot of people always send me messages saying like, "Oh, I failed at stoicism. Uh, what do I do?" And I just kind of say like, "No, stoicism um, should just <laughs> like it's kind of like a guide. Um, so if you think you failed, well, it'll guide you through this failure that you you think you've made it through." Um, and it's just there for me, at least. Stoicism is always there to guide me. Yeah, yeah. You can't fail at stoicism, right? Because because it because it, it's not over, right? Stoicism is an ongoing process. So if I have a day where I'm not living as stoically as I want to live, um, I fail if I stop and if I give up and if I say like, oh, if I buy into this narrative of this. But if I recognize tomorrow's a new day, I can try smarter. I think that's. That's beautiful. Yeah. So I seen um, that you're doing a speaking event uh, on the art of dying. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that that that, are, that recently happened, but that was beautiful. I love that. That was at so Plato's Academy, which is um, associated with um, Donald Robertson's crew and Modern Stoicism and um, other organizations that I can't pronounce really well because I live in Texas. I'm sorry. Um, that was actually really, really, really cool. I got to talk on. Uh, Donald was like, hey, do you want to talk at the uh, Art of Dying, this like um, stoic uh, philosophy conference? And I was like, only if I can talk about Socrates, his dialogue on uh, 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 at the Apology, right, before his own death. And he was like, yes. And I was like, fantastic. I love that. That was really, that was a cool event. I think it's, I think if you um, 
go to uh, the Plato's Academy website. You can, I think as recorded, people could find it there. It's really, it was, it was a, a really cool um, combination of folks talking about um, like uh, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Socrates and all these folks. So it's a good time. Right. Um, I didn't realize I missed it. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully I can view it. But um, I was going to ask like, what was your thoughts on uh, the acceptance of death? But I guess you have this idea that you shared. Could you just explain some of that? Insight. Yeah, I'm going to try to not nerd out too much because it's really exciting. Oh, it's fine. It, <laughs> as much as you want. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, you know, one of the, the the neat things about looking at so Socrates and how he approached his own life and his own death is it's there's a lot of places where he he if he wanted to he could have tried to escape these charges and that he could have just kind of said what what people wanted to hear. Right. If you look at like the sophists of the time who were focused on rhetoric instead of virtue, right? He could have focused on, okay, what do I need to tell the the court so that they'll like think I'm okay and like they'll let me go? But he was saying, like, I dedicated my whole life to trying to overcome ignorance. I dedicated my whole life to trying to live well and virtue and wisdom. Why would I before my death? Why would I recant all of these things that I've dedicated my life to? Like that would be it'd be like the last season of game of thrones. Like you build this beautiful thing. And then at the end, you're like, ah, what, what if everything we said, just forget about that. Right. Brand brand is now the king of, I'm sorry if I ruined it for people. If they haven't seen it, it's been out for too many years. Like I don't have to feel bad about spoiling it anymore. Um, I apologize, but he's saying like, this is the whole life that, that I built you. Why would I give up on this? And then um, after, after he's sentenced to death, you know, we see him then talking with people. There's dialogues, you know, post judgment where he's not like in in the cell, like lamenting. He's not um, brooding. He's not like uh, in this like victim perspective. But he's still like focusing on like I want to learn stuff. There's this guy there, and he's like, "Hey, what do you know about? Yeah, I want to learn about that. That's cool." And he's like just trying to like get as much wisdom as he can. Right. It's it's clear that um, Socrates believed that there was some sort of an afterlife and he thought there was a good place and a bad place. And he thought, like, well, I want to be a good person so I can go go to the good place. Um, which is cool. It kind of reminds me of, you know, Marcus Aurelius talking about, like, are there gods or not? Right. Marcus Aurelius essentially says, correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of says something to the effect of, you know, if there are gods and they are just live a good life and they will reward you for it. That's great. If there are gods and there aren't, and they aren't just, no matter what you do, you're not going to please them. You should focus on living a good life either way. So kind of this idea of like, there is this great unknowable and we can't really know it, but like, here's whatever the options are, like no matter what, just focus on trying to be a good person and live a good life regardless, which is kind of where Socrates lands in a similar kind of place. Like maybe when we die, there's nothingness. And then he says, but like, Nothingness would be like sleeping without dreaming. And isn't that so restful? And, and if you're sleeping without dreaming, an eternity feels like just a night, and that would be great. Or maybe there is a, a good place. And when we go there, maybe we can see these people who've gone before us. And he starts listing all of these uh, famous like heroes and, and uh, wise minds before him and saying, like, I would love to just talk with them. I would love to just learn from them, which is pretty cool. Because if I was Socrates, I'd be saying, like, oh, man, I'm so tired. I've been talking my entire life. I just want to like sit and I want to just kind of chill. Maybe I want to find my dog because all dogs go to heaven. I want to find my dog and I want to just play with my dog for like ever. But he's like, I want to learn. I want to, I want to keep learning. But you, you know, his way of seeing the afterlife, isn't that sort of um, 
like a, a broader view of Pascal's wager and probably a better way as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a very similar, very similar kind of idea, which is, I think it's kind of the great, so kind of the great unknown. Right? So what do you do about it? And how do you live your life now based on where we're at, which as, as a therapist, you know, I come up with people kind of this like existential anxiety or end of life anxiety and this idea of like what comes next and what do I do and what, what happens when I die and what do I want to make important in my life. And there's a whole branch of, of uh, psychotherapy called existential therapy where the whole, the basic, there's a lot of different writers who've written it, but it all kind of comes down to this idea that, Maybe life is inherently meaningless, but then like the meaning of life is creating meaning. Like, how do you, if there is no grand purpose to this, like, what do you do that's going to create meaning? If there is some grand purpose to this, what are you going to do to create meaning while you're here? This idea of like either, either way, like there's no guarantee that anybody gets to, to ride this ride when we're all over. So do you want to spend your life kind of stressing about what the meaning of it is? Or do you want to focus on just trying to go about being a good person and living a good life? Yeah, I think the way I see it is like, um, you know, if, if if it's nothingness, then I mean, there's nothing to worry about anyway, because like you don't remember before you was born, you might not remember after you was born. And my logic there is, well, at least I can help people um, reduce suffering uh, until that nothingness. I can help people enjoy uh, the time we do have um, before we enter that nothingness. And if there is uh, a God that is just, then they will be like, well done, you did, you did a good job. Um, and yeah, if there's an unjust God, then I don't know who, who, who really cares, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if it's a game that can't be won, like why spend your life trying to win it? So I'm either, if they're good, they'll recognize I'm good. If they're bad, I wasn't going to please them anyway, so I might as well. Which is kind of, uh, for, for myself sometimes, it's, it's a very different line, but pulling it back to that like, public speaking anxiety from earlier, that's kind of the way I approach public speaking sometimes. But I'll say like, you know, I'm just going to like do my best. And like, if they're paying attention and they like it, awesome. If they're like uh, cruel and like nothing would like work for them or they're not paying attention anyways, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to, I'm not going to win them over. And that, the recognition that some people are just scrolling on their phone and not really paying attention is actually like pretty freeing when you recognize like, cool, I can kind of do what I want to do. Yeah, um, you know, because I just thought, I don't know why I I brought up Socrates so late. Uh, Because I know you're... No, best for last. I love this. Yeah, you got a lot to say about Socrates, uh, and <laughs> I, I, he's someone I find so interesting, especially because um, there's the Stoics seem to have like idolized Socrates, um, and I guess I, I'm, I kind of can get a, a gauge of why they idolized him. You know, his character, uh, the stories of his resilience, his um, wisdom, all these kind of things. Can you explain why they would have idolized him? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, Socrates was somebody who would say, you know, there is only one good virtue. And so this lines up really well with this idea of stoicism, which is a lived philosophy, right? I'm going to live a life guided by virtues. Um, I think other reasons why they really, you know, saw him as, although he was way before, you know, Zeno's time, he's sort of viewed as the godfather of stoicism. Um, and part of that might just be that's, that's what initially brought Zeno into philosophy, right? Like after the shipwreck, he's kind of wandering around town. He finds the bookseller. He's reading about Socrates and he's like, how do I find somebody like this before he finds uh, crates? You know, so there is kind of that like maybe like a nostalgia for like this is kind of none of this would have happened without like this bookseller being there at that time. Like what what a fantastic thing. Um, but I think I don't I'm at, 
the way that I read Socrates might be viewed by or might be skewed by my like affection towards him. So it is possible that like I I have a caricature of him. But when I read Socrates, when I when I you know when we were writing the the, the workbook, I had to go and reread all of um, you know Plato and Xenophon's writing about Socrates over again, which was fantastic. And I was just so struck by just how like like fiercely uh, principled and fiercely valued he was around like. I value wisdom. I value being a good person. I value uh, justice. I value virtue, and and not just like saying that, but trying to actually do it. And kind of like over and over and over again. And I think the Stoics, who were also really focused on a lived philosophy, not not an academic philosophy, but a lived philosophy. I think they really really resonated with that as well. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to. I wrote a quote earlier, and some uh, see if I can find it. Something you, when you was talking about uh, Socrates, Socrates' death. Um, I don't know if I can find it. I don't know if I even wrote the quote down. Um, I did not. It's not in any of these. But anyway, I sort of remember the basis of it. But you was talking about his death, um, and he sort of, you know, he accepted it. He didn't resist it. He didn't, um, you know. Uh, discredit his character, he didn't ruin his character to uh, avoid death. And I remember in um, Epictetus's writing, he talks about the same thing about, uh, I'm trying to remember it, this is why I should have wrote the quote down. Uh, he's talking about it being going to Nero's court maybe, and if he didn't, then he's sentenced to death. And then he's saying he, he wants to be, he doesn't want to be the white thread in the toga, he wants to be the purple thread that, that stands out. In a way, I was speaking to Gregory Sadler about this, actually, but then I've reread it and thought about it. And I think he's sort of like, if he dies keeping true to his character, um, he is executed by Nero, then he's stuck to his character. He, he is like a shining example of a Stoic. He's stuck to his virtue. Um, and is that kind of what you're saying about Socrates? Yeah, I think absolutely, right? Because I think there is this... It's easy to like say like here's like what kind of life you should live, right? Talk is cheap. It's another thing to, to live it and embody it. And you see people like Epictetus and Socrates, right? Who um who are saying like really wise things, and people are like, oh, this is a banger. This is really wise. I love this. And then all of a sudden, like their life is on the line. This is where we see like, do they really believe it? Right. And I think both of them recognize, like, yeah. I, I know I, I could kind of say whatever I have to say to get out of this, but why why would I do that? Like why would I like if I if I save my life but I sacrifice everything I did, like what value does my life have? Um which I think is you know a theme that we see with uh Muslims Rufus, is a theme we see with Cato the Younger. I think this shows up over and over again with Stoicism, this idea of like the value my life has is, is is somewhat rooted in my commitment to my values. It's so much it's so much uh, rooted in the integrity that I have. Yeah, uh, I suppose. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say. I suppose that that's what makes these figures stand out so much. These stories of the character, and I, I guess um, you know the, the stories from, of Socrates were passed down to the Stoics, and th that's. Uh, I guess that had huge influence on people like Epictetus and Masonius Rufus, um, especially at least from what, what I'm seeing in their in their uh, literature. I feel like Socrates as a person 
not just his philosophy, not just what he was teaching, but had a huge impact on these uh, later philosophers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the way I think about it, I don't know if this is true or not, but the way I think about it is that like Plato's like Apology, Plato's Republic, some of the, you know, Plato's like key writings would have been like di- distributed in a way where the, the folks who were involved with philosophy would have would have read these in a, in a foundational way, similar to perhaps me and my schooling. I'm reading like The Great Gatsby or something like that, or I'm reading like the like um, uh, Freud's on Dreams or uh, Beck's uh, Cognitive Therapy for Emotional Disorders. There's these foundational books that everybody reads, like Irvin Yalom's um, Love's Execution or these these books that everyone reads. I think this is also just like kind of like required reading in a sense that uh, everybody would be reading it and viewing it and loving it. Now, you know what? Because I've got a lot of interest in Socrates, but I haven't, I've been so, you know, every time I pick up a book, I'm like, maybe I should just read the Stoics again. And I I just keep going back to, instead of reading some new literature, I end up just reading uh, the same literature I've been reading for the past decade. Uh, But so Socrates is someone I want to, look into a lot more um what what is it about socrates that sort of dr- dr- got your interest well i think the the initial interest was just my interest in socratic questioning made me interested in uh socrates right there's this one of my favorite strategies one of my favorite interventions as a therapist is the ability to think with someone instead of thinking for them Right. The, the whole idea of Socratic questioning is you want to help people come to new conclusions on their own. Yeah. Could you explain? Uh, could you explain that? Because I've, I, I don't know too much about it and I'm sure the listeners, um, a lot of the listeners won't. Can you explain what Socratic questioning is? Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes people like misconstrue Socratic questioning to mean like opening, just asking open ended questions, um, which is, it's a bit more than that. The, um, so Socrates' whole deal, right, the was he wanted to help people overcome their own ignorance. He, um, as the story goes, right, the the oracle uh, was asked, who's the wisest? And, and then the oracle said, none is wiser than Socrates. This gets back to Socrates, and Socrates says, like, I don't think I'm that wise. But also, like, he's, like, a, a deeply spiritual person. He's like, but the oracle speaks for the gods, and if the oracle says I'm the wisest, he now has, like, two competing ideas that don't make sense. Like, I am like a fallible human and the gods have spoken and say that I am the wisest. And the way he makes sense of this is I just need to find somebody who's wiser than me. And then I can be kind of free of this burden. Um, And maybe like, they're just kind of confused. And so he sets out to find people who are wiser than him. And so he, he asks like priests about piety. He asks like generals about courage. He tries to find people who know stuff about stuff. And then he asks them about their area of interest. Like, what do you know about? Let's learn about it. And it ends up being this like really disillusioning process where he finds out that a lot of what we think we know is assumption. We have these stories we tell ourselves and we're sure of them, but a lot of it is just kind of like, yeah, here's what I think instead of like what we really actually know. And so he sets out to find somebody who's wiser than himself. And then he ends up finding out that actually we have, we have what he would call a conceit of knowledge, meaning, um, we're, we're lying to ourselves and saying that we know more than we know. We're ignorant. And then worse, we're ignorant to our own ignorance or, or double ignorance, as, as the philosophers would call it. And so he's trying to help people overcome their own ignorance. And 
And in that, he develops this Socratic method, which is like an ask and answer method of teaching where I'm going to ask you questions, you're going to answer them. You can ask me questions, I'm going to answer them. And it's going to be a, a true dialogue instead of a lecture. And so he starts asking people questions. They're asking him questions to figure out, how do we know what's going on here? My favorite example of this is actually, um, this is a silly little example, but Socrates finds himself in, in a beauty contest, probably because they're really bored. And Socrates was no, he was no Adonis, right? There is like a Greek ideal of like beauty. Of course, all bodies are beautiful. And like, you don't need to like look like an Adonis to be valuable, but Socrates does not look like an Adonis, right? He's short, he's bald, his eyes are bulging, his nose is turned up, um, and um, various, various other things that the Greeks weren't thrilled about. And so he's in this beauty contest with them. And all of a sudden he starts using his like, his like, um, as myetic and electric method where he's asking people questions to see like what's going on here. So he says like, well, how are we defining beauty? What does this mean? And so they're like, well, I think we all know beauty when we see it. And he says, right. But like, um, are only humans beautiful? Can other things be beautiful? And then they say, well, um, I mean, animals can be beautiful and surely even like a spear can be beautiful if it's well made for its function. And he says, well, this is interesting. So we have this really narrow idea of what does it mean to be beautiful and now I've expanded that idea. And now that I've expanded that idea, I can work with that. So we start saying, okay, so functional is beautiful. That's cool. Hey, guess what? My eyes that bulge out of my face, you call these crab eyes? I, I have better peripheral vision. I can see to the right and the left better than other people because my eyes are bulging out. My nose that's turned up that people make fun of, I can smell better. And actually, it doesn't block my vision the way yours does. So we start saying all of these things that you, that you thought were liabilities are functional and therefore beautiful. And it's this really kind of silly but like fun little dialogue of him walking through and, expand, and expanding the point of view. I mean, the way that Socrates does this, essentially, he first tries to figure out, well, what are we really talking about here? What's the core idea? And then once they identify the core idea, then he's going to try to expand that point of view and then he's going to try and test it out to see how does it fit. So, for example, if you had an idea that you were a failure because you have you don't have the job you want, you don't have the partner you want, you don't have the life you want yet, Socrates is, is not going to say, well, what's the evidence that you're a failure? Let's test this out. First, he's going to say, well, what does it mean to be a failure? And you're going to say, well, I haven't accomplished these things. And he's going to say, well, huh, how are we defining failure? What is this? What's the definition for this? And he's going to try to expand that first. So you might say, okay, so you don't, so you're a failure because you don't have the job you want or the partner you want or the house you want. So is the default to be a failure? Are you born a failure? If we were to go to a maternity ward, could you, none of these babies have jobs? None of these babies have spouses. None of these babies have uh, any lifetime achievement awards. Like, are they failures? Like this baby here, are they a failure? And this is a way to start expanding the definition. And then he would probably reshape failure from lack of achievement to failure, meaning like giving up. He might say, well, if you have some successes and some failures, are you still a failure? If you fail and fail and fail and then succeed, are you still a failure? If you fail and fail and fail and then succeed and then fail again, are you a failure? And trying to sh uh, test it out and then from there and expand it. So as, as a therapist, you know, we're looking to help people see not just like what are the stories you're telling yourself, but what are the what are the assumptions? What are the definitions? All right. If you think you're a bad mother, what's your ideal you're trying to live up to? Could we instead shift to the idea of like a good enough because it's impossible to be perfect? And so that 
skill, that strategy was, was what, what I really loved about cognitive therapy. Um, and that's what brought me to Socrates to see like, who is this guy that invented this thing? And then the more you read about him, you're like, this guy is lovable. He's like a little bit of a jerk. He's very charming. He's just so interesting. And um, he's just a fun, fun guy. Definitely. Did he win the competition? No, he's that's my favorite part. So he has this like beautiful conversation and they're like, yeah, but like, this is like, uh, this is like a Greek beauty contest. Like Socrates, like, you're not, you're not the Adonis. You're not going to win this. And I, it's just so funny to me. You know, I could, uh, yeah, I think I need to learn more about Socrates because hearing you talk about him is quite, it's interesting. And I bet there's a lot of stories about Socrates. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great stories, right? Like there's um another, just a quick example, right? So there's this uh, young man who's um, wants to kind of, he's a, He's ready to like kind of step into the world. And he's saying, hey, Socrates, you seem to know everybody. I want to meet some friends. Like, could you introduce me to some people? And Socrates says, yeah, like, what kind of people do you want to meet? And so he starts talking about like the attributes he wants and the kind of people he wants to meet. And then Socrates says, like, okay, so how many of these attributes do you have? And the young man has to go like, oh, he's like, all right, well, it sounds like you got to, you can't look for like achievement through other people. You got to work on yourself as well. It's a pretty, pretty cool kind of strategy. With um, Socrates, say, say I've read, I've never read anything. Imagine, you know, I don't know anything about Socrates. Where would I start? So hard and so exciting. Um, I would probably start with the Apology by Plato. I think that's a pretty good place to be. Um, I mean, selfishly, I could say by our book, we have a lot of examples of, of uh, kind of real life Socrates examples there. Um, the book that I'm looking forward to that's on my wish list is Donald Robertson's currently writing a, a Socrates book as well, really? which I'm super, which I'm super jazzed about. Um, I don't know. I imagine like uh, how to think of a Roman emperor, but like for Socrates, I'm going to have to take a, a week off from work and just read it and be happy. Um, but but those, are, those are good places. That's where I would start. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good. I didn't actually know Donald Robertson was writing a book on Socrates, um, which... Now I'm very excited for because his his, write, his writing's incredible, um, and you know, it's, it's like it, it's the type of book. His writing is the type of thing that you can read for a very long time. You know, like most books, you sort of get to the end and it's done. But with, with him, I, I'll read a chapter and go, hmm, maybe I'll reread that chapter, um, and it's just so enjoyable. Um, so last two questions, my um, microphone now is on low battery. So um, we're so number. So there's a question I always end on, but I don't want to end. I don't want to say that just yet. There was something I was thinking before then. Is um, yeah, it's, it's an odd question, um, but hopefully it makes sense. Is because it makes sense to me. Do you have any advice that? you've used in your own life that's really helped shape your life, really helped change your life, that's maybe very obscure that you don't normally give it out to people, but it's something that's personally helped you? Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, uh, although like there's a lot of like cognitive and behavioral stuff around like changing your thoughts, changing your behaviors, a, a big part of being stoic and being a cognitive behavioral therapist is also like like having like an, an emotional intelligence, like not no like not running from your emotions. So learning to kind of be present with them. And the, the way that I personally approach that is 
I don't know. I don't know if you've ever been out. Uh, so if you go to the to the, under the ocean, there's this place kind of where like right around the breakers where the, the swell kind of comes in and comes out and comes in and comes out. And a lot of people kind of like intuitively migrate out there and kind of bob up and down on the water, kind of jumping up with it. And it's just this like really comfortable place to find where it, there's there's a lot of movement happening, but it feels feels very safe and it feels very warm. For me, that's kind of the way I approach approach uh, just kind of, kind of managing and being present with my own emotions at times. Like I try to, um, I, I, I internally imagine like there's like a, an ocean at times. So I internally imagine that there's kind of this swell coming in and coming out and coming in and coming out. And I try to just hold on to that feeling of the rise and the fall and the rise and the fall. And I try to hold on to, if, if there's like a lot going on, I try to find find the rhythm of it. And recognize, like, I can't stop the waves, but I can learn to surf. Right? I can't stop the waves, but I can kind of, I, I can bounce with this. I can be buoyant with this. And one one wave at a time, it actually becomes pretty soothing. So I don't, I don't always explain that to people because I feel like it's maybe like a little esoteric. Uh, but it is, it is something that's been pretty helpful for me. So if there's anybody listening, hopefully it's helpful for you. I like that. I like that you you had a, a good answer for that question. It's a it's a odd question, but I, I do think um, everyone sort sort of has that one thing that maybe they've just come up in their own head and they thought this really helps me. Um, and the, the reason I ask that is because I, I think they those strange obscure ideas can help other people, um, but we often don't share it because it seems too personal or a bit too um, esoteric. And then finally, is um, in terms of philosophy, the way I see it is like just the way of being, the way you want to treat others, the way you want to be as a person. Um, how would you summarize your life philosophy? Oh, that's a good question. I think my, my life philosophy is is um, I, I want to focus on trying to create something like like having a long term perspective, having enjoyment along the way, and trying to. Um, similar to like when um, it's a bad example, but similar to like when um, Theresa and uh, uh, Musonius Rufus are being uh, exiled, and Musonius is like, "Why not see if we can live with this? Why not see if we can adjust to this?" And I think that attitude is what I try to hold on to, right? Because there's a lot of turns in life that aren't the way that I think it's going to go, and but that I, I'm trying to just enjoy the ride, and I'm trying to just say, you know. I can probably I can probably overcome this. I can probably deal with this. Trying to view, and I think it's sunny to say, like trying to view challenges and opportunity, but just trying to hold on to this idea that I'm I like you and like everybody else are I'm good at overcoming challenges, right? I'm good at tolerating things that are unpleasant. And if I can approach this from the perspective of I'm gonna try and make the most of it, it's gonna be easier than trying to approach it from the perspective of I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. Cause it's this is the one life I have. So do I want to spend it being mad about this is the life I have, or do I want to try and and make the most of it? That's good. I like that. It, it sounds like uh, you sound a bit like Epictetus. Oh, I, I like that. I but I just think he was talking about you know he, he was obviously a slave. He was crippled, and um, I can't think of a quote off the top of my head. But he he said similar things about like um, I guess it overstokes do. It's the, it's the character. This is the character you've been given in the play. Mm-hmm. Play it to the best of your ability. Um, but yeah, I like the way you put it. 
Yeah, that idea of like you can uh, fetter my leg, but you can't fetter my mind. I think is pretty pretty spot on. Like like my my options might be limited, but I always have options. Yeah, that I mean that's what I love about Epictetus. He's so uh, badass. Like yeah, right. The stuff he says, you just like you know, if he was in a movie, he'd be a pretty cool character. Oh, totally. And it's like lived life experience too. It's not like somebody who's like in like an academic classroom saying these like really cool things, but it's like. He's, he's been there. He's done it. He's like, look, I've been to hell and back. And let me tell you how I made it through it. I like that. Well, uh, thank you for talking today, Scott. Uh, Thanks for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, it, it was really good. Um, my mic has died. So I've, I've got back at one. But that's so it's kind of good it ended here. Um, but I'm glad it went on for so long. Um, I was a bit annoyed I started talking about Socrates so late because. Um, Oh no, that was great. That was I, I feel like I enjoy all, all the topics. I feel like I could ask you about Socrates all day. Um, you know, That'd be fun. and maybe yeah, maybe we should have another talk and just focus on uh, Socrates because I feel like that would be quite yeah. quite good. Yeah. But um, is there anything you want to um, put out there for uh, pe- what you want people to check out, what you want to say to people, um, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, if there's anyone who's like um, a therapist or a coach, um, my book, Socratic Questioning for Therapists and Counselors, is out. Um, feel free to check it out. It's been translated a few languages. Uh, for, for folks who are, are just regular people living a regular life, trying to just make it. Um, we have a, a book coming out with New Harbinger. It's available for pre-order currently called The Stoicism Workbook. Um, which is focused on uh, Socratic wisdom and Stoic wisdom, trying to teach uh, how to overcome challenges in, in a practical way, hopefully with a lot of useful examples. But um, yeah, thanks. Nice. And if anybody likes um, like memes and stuff, I do have an Instagram page, which is probably bigger than it should be. It's kind of embarrassing at this point. Uh, although it's not like your page, you, you have a lot of stuff going on. I maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a small a small fish, but I have a book. It's called uh, Socratic Method CBT. Um, which is kind of a meme page at this point, but you know what? It's a it's a really good page. I really do like it. Um, and the book, the the Stoic workbook, um, I'm currently reading just for the viewers, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it at the moment. I'm not going to say I'll, I'll say my full thoughts when I've uh, completed it. Um, and just a thought on your other book. I haven't read your other book, but you say it's for counselors and therapists. Yeah. Is that right? Um, do you think the average person could read it? I, I mean, I've, had, I've known a lot of people who aren't therapists who have read it and found it to be helpful. I think the the challenge is, is it's, um, uh, it, it is, it, it's written from the perspective of how to be a good therapist, but it's also, but, but CBT is such like a practical therapy that it's, there's nothing in there that's going to be like mysterious or confusing, but it's, um, the very end of it, the, of the book, is focused on how to use this on yourself, which is the workbook is kind of an elaborated version of it. I think if somebody wasn't a clinician and they were looking for something to read, the, the Stoicism workbook is more geared towards them. Um, actually, the last two chapters of the Stoicism workbook are, are the first one is how to like how to think like Socrates, like in a not like for non-emotional thoughts. Like how do I, what are like the, the bulk skills, the metacognitive skills about how do I, how do I use this on myself? And then the final chapter is like a double chapter, which is how do I use these skills on my own self-narrative? 
So I think I think that might be a, a better fit for folks. Uh, but certainly, if you, if you were interested in Curious, I've had a lot of people who aren't clinicians who've read it and have really enjoyed it. I just, I'd, um, I feel like the, the workbook is, is an easier fit. Uh, yeah, I was just, because um, I personally want to read it um, after I've mm-hmm. read the Stoke workbook. And I, I was just thinking um, about Jung. Jung. Jung didn't want to write for the average person because he didn't think the average person would like it. But then it turns out the average person loves Jung. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought maybe the average person uh, the average person might read your book and, you know, even though it's not geared towards them, it might be super helpful, super interesting. So um, just a thought I had. Oh, it's very generous of you. Thank you. But, um, I will be, once I've read this one, um, your other book will be added to my list of the never-ending list of books I need to read. Um, and I'm now Socrates is being added to that list. Um, but I will be sharing my thoughts on both books at some point. I hope you enjoyed today's talk with Scott. I certainly did. And I'd love to talk to him again about Socrates. If you have any questions about today's podcast, leave them below and I'll give my best answer. Guys, I am really happy to share that this Everyday Stoic Simple Rules for a Good Life is available for pre-order. And the reason I'm happy to share, because I always believed what was in the book was good. I put my soul into it, I put my heart into it, and I put a lot of stoic wisdom into it, practical stoic wisdom that I've used. It's in a practical, understandable way. It was understandable to me, this guy that didn't know anything about philosophy. Um, I didn't go to, to school or anything like that. I was a bricklayer, but it helped me become a better version of myself, a version that I'm happy with. And all the wisdom I've put into this, but the reason I'm happy to share it is I think um, this is the first print and it looks beautiful. I was so happy when I received it um, from the publisher. I think the team have done an incredible job on this. It is currently available for pre-order in UK, States and Canada. And it has been translated so far into 11 different languages. So it's probably coming to a country near you. Your where you're living, it'll be available to read in your chosen language and I'm sure it will keep growing and I hope you enjoy it as much as the people who have been reading it and reviewing it for me. Um, I'm getting great feedback, everyone's loving it. I haven't had any bad feedback yet, which, you know, I'm open to bad feedback, I'm expecting bad feedback, but haven't received any yet and all I've heard is great reviews. So, um, I hope you enjoy it and I hope it can help you. I really do hope it can help you. I believe it can. If you're interested in any Huel products, then the link will be in the description. I really recommend them. Um, And their new daily greens are delicious. I recommend them as well. Okay. Thank you for listening. So stoicism has made it into hip hop. When you look at all of these lyrics about survival, about patience, about enduring, about waiting until their moment comes, all of these things fall directly in line with stoic ideals. If we sat down together, you could keep going through, oh, this song's talking about uh, Taoism, this song's talking about chess, this song's talking about Sun Tzu. I guess like the, the wisdom, it's not being